Hey everyone, my name is Phil Santer and I'm on the Spark team leading our business development efforts. This was our fifth year doing TechTrack and we did something a bit different this year and partnered with the Ann Arbor District Library to record some conversations live during TechTrack. This was the first conversation of the afternoon and features Jeremy Peters uh, and Mariah from the uh, Ann Arbor District Library talking about the impact that streaming services have on the music industry overall. I thought it was a fascinating conversation um, to hear a couple people that have really been um, doing music um, and for the past few years to really see how it has affected it from their side and I thought it was a really interesting uh, and intriguing conversation to kind of kick off our afternoon. And in terms of contracting, the whole process of digital contracting, that's completely changed the way, at least, um, and I think maybe as since we were in the music industry and on the indie side, we were a little more okay with emerging technologies and trying to sure. um, maybe be inventive and playing with them a little bit. So we were cool with trying to do things like that um, and taking um, you know, those kind of calculated risks. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting now that music and music consumption has started leaning pretty heavily towards streaming, how important um, the little bits of data and information are mm -hmm. to make sure that artists and, well, I was obviously interested being a label person yeah. and a publisher that we were getting paid, but ultimately it's sure. we're trying to get the artists paid. Sure. Um, and those little bits of metadata and information and the collection of those and making sure they're all correct yeah. um, is a massive job. And that was sort of the whole point of the one um, panel I did. Okay. We had the person who's now one of the vice presidents of Downtown Music Publishing okay. there mm -hmm. and a couple other folks from Sound Exchange and a couple other music industry organizations just talking about how there is all this money sitting waiting to be collected because the data is horrible, right. essentially. Um, right. And it's um, maybe was easier um, to s connect or draw the lines between a physical sale mm -hmm. and put that into a royalty report. Yeah, um, like SoundScan numbers or whatever. Being yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, so that's definitely changed. You know, I started at Ghostly right around when iTunes started. So. Yeah, I was actually wondering exactly what year that would have been. Yeah, so I started at Ghostly in um, 2003. Okay, yeah. Um, it was right around, we, they had just opened up iTunes to all the indies. And okay. we, I remember looking at the 99-page contract <laughs> saying, like, I think this is okay. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. Um, but, um, I mean, you still managed to keep a job for a while, so. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> screw that one up, I guess. Um, but, Good job. Um, that we and we sort of very tenuously looked at that because it was something completely brand new. And even as an indie, we I think we were a little scared, but it was so sort of out of the realm of what had happened before. So we'd put up half CDs, um, which in hindsight turned out to be a bad idea, but we yeah. didn't know that then. Sure. And we weren't the only ones doing that. Yeah. Um, but you know, having gone through that and seeing how how people embraced being able to have um, music that was more mobile yeah. and being able to have uh, that sort of content move from device to device was really sort of interesting. So I can see how 
being able to untether from like thousands and thousands of gigabytes of files and having that stuff stream um, could have happened. I, if I were, I probably would be in a different job if I were smart enough to have capitalized on that. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's hard, yeah, to look ahead and really figure out exactly yeah. how that's gonna go. And I think what you say about like all of the gigabytes of information, I think even before that we saw um, with people being like, okay, like I love records, I love, I mean, CDs even, but just like I don't want to move these crates like from place to place to place, right? And so whether yeah. we're talking about like a physical item or whether we're talking about like how much memory space, you know, these things that you probably really love um, are taking up, um, it has become like a very different proposition right now to be. I'm not even gonna say a music fan because I don't know that everyone who listens to music would consider themselves like a hardcore fan. Um, but even just to like explore different types of music. So you were talking about uh, licensing and how those relationships mm -hmm. are different now. Um, and I think probably some of the relationships um, between artists and fans are probably somewhat different too. Would you say that's probably true? Like, yeah, I yeah. Think, um, think when I, definitely when I started and um, put on my like sort of music historian hat for a second mm -hmm. um, or music business historian hat for a second. I think the relationship between artist and fan mediated by the company who's putting out the records mm -hmm. um, has definitely changed. Uh, there wasn't a really great way of kind of sampling stuff other than listening to the radio and even that wasn't great um, for a long time and I think that that relationship between the fan and the artist has changed in that it's easier as a music user, whether or not you're like a hardcore fan or you're somebody that's just kind of interested in finding out a new artist, it's a lot yeah. easier to do some taste testing. Right. Um, much like what I think folks who are interested in books um, mm -hmm. or interested in books on tape or eBooks might be able to do by you know, coming to a place like this and coming into a library and testing out something, then they might want to add that into their own collection. I think that happens a lot in the music industry now. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm not the best example, but I know <laughs> that there are albums that I listen to on Apple Music, mm -hmm. um, that I listen to and have bought the MP3s of. Yeah. I have a CD of somewhere in my <laughs> office still because right. I can't get rid of all of them. Sure. And I might even have it on vinyl as well. And so yeah. I've given the artist, you know, a decent chunk of change over and over. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna pull out the CD. I want that Every as an time. artifact yeah. or something to keep in my own personal library of stuff so that I have it no matter what if mm -hmm. I decide not to be a subscriber for um, Apple Music and my collection goes away or my hard drive gets wiped, I still have a copy of that. Yeah. And that means something to me. Um, but it's so much easier for me to just get on the Mac and type, play Bon Iver, or play yeah. whatever <laughs> right, artist right. Um, yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, and I feel like that's something that uh, as a library and as people who work in a library and um, that we have a sense of the fact that like physical objects are still important um, and ownership is still important. Mm -hmm. So in the library, we're obviously talking about collective ownership, but when we talk about a DVD or we talk about a book, maybe it's a really expensive art book, 
but we have it and multiple people can share it, right? Exactly. Um, but I do know that, uh, you know, and that idea also translates to some of the musical equipment that we have, some of the different home tools that we have. There's this thing that is like available for a set price. It might be something that you want to try before you buy it yourself. Um, but, you know, we have that available for folks. And again, I don't know if I'm the typical consumer, mm -hmm. but likewise, I will listen to an album on Bandcamp. And yeah, if it's exactly. someone that I really love, like I'm probably gonna go to the show, I'm probably gonna buy a physical copy of the album because I do, personally, I get a little bit squirrely and concerned. And then as a librarian, I get a little bit squirrely and concerned that all of a sudden, if you are only relying on streaming, these things can evaporate. Um, you know, we've been talking recently about, um, you know, WCBN, the local music yeah. show. They have seven years worth of um, the local music show live performances on SoundCloud. SoundCloud's great, but it is its own platform, right? Yeah. And so if, that's, if there's no redundancy and if there's no backing up of that, it doesn't even have to be physical media, but if there's no other place that that's stored. Yeah, if for um, some reason yeah. SoundCloud goes out of business tomorrow, totally. that history is gone and that's kind of a scary thing. And as because it's so easy to put out music in digital format, whether that's an MP3 file, which is still kind of ephemeris and yeah. easily deletable yeah. um, or streaming, you know, in terms of having those sort of artifacts, it's a really interesting question of how you keep track of those things. For me as like a quasi-academic at least, <laughs> um, who's interested in that, in these kind of things. So if I wanted to know more about plays of a song or, you know, if these digital-only releases, um, if that kind of gets wiped from the the face of history, mm -hmm. I only have maybe sort of a, a secondary artifact of that, maybe the billboard um, sales charts, and I can't figure out like why people might have been interested in that or mm -hmm. that if those things kind of go away. And so it's, yeah, because then you don't have that more of that context, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. And I know something that uh, I mentioned earlier. We were talking a little bit about you know physicality and material culture version of things. But I think that one thing that's hard as a library is that we want to be able to offer whatever our patrons want. I mean, within reason. But we really do try. Um, mm -hmm. And we try to be adaptable. And we always try to you know, uh, be generous and, and get in things that people want. But we're at a point now where there are quite a few albums, like really popular albums. Um, you know, I'm thinking like Cardi B, Jay-Z, Beyonce, where like for a certain period of time, those things are not available on CD at all. Um, and it is interesting because CDs actually still circulate a lot. I think part of it is that people have CD players in their car, right? Yeah, exactly. And people like will just also, you know, want a physical item. But that's hard for me as a librarian who's managing a collection to be able to say like, oh, I really want to be able to offer this to you. And in that way, I understand that the piece of the pie for the record label isn't that huge probably from the physical, but in that way, sometimes I see it as them leaving money on the table, right? Because I can't be the only librarian or person who's like really wanting to get this. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and it's like, it brings up an interesting acquisitions question. Like, do you get it after, do you get that CD after if it eventually comes out on CD, but it's yeah. not being requested quite as much? So. Does it still make sense to pay to get that? Yeah. Um, and then there's questions of like, I know we were able to come to an agreement with the library and I felt really proud of that. Yeah. Um, that I felt respected the artists and you guys um, felt, did a good job to respect your user base and what they were interested in. Um, 
And I think there's going to have to be maybe more of that happening as we move more and more away from physical product. Just because digital music is mm -hmm. so ubiquitous and it's sort of a way that people interact with it, it's going to be something we'll have to change. I don't know what that yeah. is going to if it's going to be, you know, checking out music players with music files on them or checking out um, somebody will figure out a way to check out streaming files or yeah. whatever that ends up being. Um, but I think your point about the CD circulation is really interesting too because it kind of matches at least some of the recent sale, international sales information I've seen. So streaming is obviously growing by leaps and bounds. And sure. The amount of money that artists are making, um, talking about artists broadly because there's a yeah. kind of a winner-takes-all thing that happens with popular writers and popular yeah, I could see that um, yeah yeah popular musicians but Absolutely. that's sort of beside the point um but there's still a lot of physical product moving. Mm -hmm. there's a lot of CDs being sold um and people keep calling it a fad but there's a fair amount of vinyl that's being sold too and it generates a, a fair amount of income and I could so I it's not gone the way of the dodo I think five right. years ago I probably said you know I bet CDs will be gone and completely gone in five years and turns out I'm completely wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. So take what I just said with a grain of salt. But um, I think that there's place for that and people still listen to those formats. And it's, yeah, it, it's tough when, for whatever reason, whatever exclusive, whatever business decision a label might have made, they decide to sort of leave that money on the table because, you know, if you figure there's one of, there's an AD, ADL in basically every city who might want to acquire that really popular album, yeah. you do that math, it's a lot of businesses who might be interested, or a lot of libraries who might be interested in buying that or getting that. And um, yeah, they might be, it's, I think it's fair that they're leaving money on the table. Yeah, I mean, probably for a really popular artist, that's probably, you know, like, they're like, eh, but people are going to get it somehow anyway. But at the same time, it, it is sort of a gap. And I feel like, mm -hmm. um, you know, the agreement that we were able to come to with Ghostly and Quasi stuff, um, but then also we're working on this project called AMPS, which is Ann Arbor Music and Performance Server, where we're licensing directly um, with local artists. I do feel like that model we're able to, at least on a smaller level, and I don't know how scalable it is over the long term, but on a local level, we're able to figure something out that is respectful of the artist, their time, their work, and also, again, like respectful of our users. Because at a certain point, the streaming model or just being able to stream something while you're at work or whatever, like that does become the expectation, right? So, um, but I think that from a library standpoint, that project has been interesting to me because that also has a component of can we get this in perpetuity? Yeah. Can we preserve the local musical culture now, as opposed to 30 years down the road being like, eh, did someone have that record? Um, which we ran into when we were doing history projects related to the 60s, um, where people were just like, yeah, I think my friend Jerry has this thing, but it was never released. Yeah, and, or yeah. somebody like me that wants to research the starting of like A Squared or some of those records. Absolutely. And yet some of those things exist, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of Maybe they're folk. Maybe it's folklore, but probably mm -hmm. isn't of the these musicians and these bands um, in the '60s and '70s. And question of some of that stuff's evaporated. Totally. Um, and and you it's know, kind of sad because it's. I try to tell the story and I want to illustrate it in a classroom that like, oh, there's this music history here 
and it was this recorded history and it predates what you're doing here and there was a music industry actually here and then can't really elaborate on that very much because I don't it's hard to find the yeah. stuff yeah I mean it. you know maybe and I don't even know that this is true but maybe you know up at um, the Bentley maybe there's like one box of things about Gary Grimshaw right if we're talking yeah. about physical culture um, if we're talking about like the art that accompanied like a lot of that exchange between art and music during that particular time and I understand why an academic institution might only have one slice of that but I think as a public library it becomes if we're thinking of ourselves as stewards of yeah. um, culture as well as like physical product, it becomes more incumbent upon us to try to figure out these ways that we can like keep things around and yeah. keep people. And that sort of that. direct to artist model is interesting. Interesting, especially in this sort of area now where the ability to release a record mm -hmm. um, is sort of democratized. Like you don't yeah. have to go through all the gates necessarily to put out a record. You can put something on Bandcamp, you can sign mm -hmm. up yourself on CD Baby and get it manufactured and put it out. Um, you can sort of do the same thing for iTunes using whatever yeah. service. Yeah. And all those, that gatekeeping is kind of done. And so you don't necessarily have to go through all the same gates to acquire things, but it becomes this other sort of signal versus noise question, Absolutely. which is it could be overwhelming. probably outside of the com outside <laughs> of the realm of this conversation. But yeah, yeah. it's a question of, you know, what does the job of a label become? Totally. And that's even changed in the last um, 10 years and will we'll change in the next 10 years moving forward. I bet. Um, as te technology pushes around how fans sort of decide they want to interact with musicians, both mm -hmm. in just a sort of 2D, I'm just listening to something on speakers mm -hmm. um, mindset, moving to sort of surround sound music, moving mm. into sort of more interactive, mm -hmm. alternative or... Different sort um, of experience. Yeah, alternative okay. reality kind of ways of hmm. seeing live music or actually being there and what that means. Um, that's going to totally completely change the way labels, I think what a label means to just the way that I think um, good libraries like you are changing the way, the idea of what a library means, where you can come in and check out a painting or you can come in and check out a something to create music instead of just the artifact or the piece, the recording itself, yeah. um, which is kind of flipping the script on what <laughs> it means, what classically meant to be um, a library. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, we're keeping that ethos of like the shared resources. Um, and we've had the circulating art collection for a really long time now, so we kind of had that as proof of concept. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, it is interesting to see different ways that we can figure out um, ways to share resources for the community. I think that your point about uh, the changing nature of what a label is and sort of the curatorial aspect, um, the aspect of saying like, okay, this thing is worth your while, or you like this band, we have these other bands that we've signed and you might also like them, um, is something that we've seen and talked a lot about in terms of publishers of print, yeah. right? Or ebooks. Um, but like the large publishers, especially like the big six, which I think is the big five now, um, you know, they've been dealing with these questions of like, yes, you can self publish now, you can sign up with Ingram, you can get some sort of distribution. But again, like what's the difference? You know, yeah. like what resources does uh, even a small publisher have? to put behind um, their list, their front list and their back list, 
versus what can you do yourself and what's that signal to noise ratio kind of thing, right? So we all just don't get buried in music and literature that we just don't know how to sort through. Exactly, and I think that labels, at least definitely, maybe not so much the majors, but there are sub, you know, sort of sub imprints that try to do it on the majors, but I come from the indie record label world, so I'll just use that as an example. Sure. Um, it's easier. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But indie labels, I think, tend to, by and large, try to provide a little bit of that filter. Mm -hmm. um, totally. You know, you might come into knowing um, an artist that's signed to Secretly Canadian and realize, oh, you know, there's a couple other artists, and there's certain labels that do this more than others. There's sub pop, sure. you know, you know, if you like something, the Seattle kind of quality, sound, a little bit punky, a little bit pop, a little mm -hmm. bit whatever. Yeah. You could probably randomly pick a record out of their 500 records and you might not love it, but you're probably going to like it. And I yeah. think there's a large number of labels that tend to do that for music fans um, who end up looking at that. However, the sort of ubiquitous with stream ubiquitousness with streaming um, where stuff is just showing up on playlists mm -hmm. has changed that. That filter is now whoever makes the playlist or the filter is now um, your friend who made the playlist for you. Or, or the filter even comes through the algorithm that's parsing the metadata. Exactly. Right? So that's just making a recommendation which may or may not have a human behind it. Right. Um, and which also probably depends on the accuracy of that metadata. Totally. Right? Yeah. 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 And there's... You know the streaming services fight against each other like we actually have humans making our playlists and, no we're just recommending things for you yeah, um, and yeah which one's more valid and do you get in this sort of like group think kind of echo chamber Luke. of I'm only gonna listen to this kind of music and you never right. experience anything and maybe that's another question outside but it's an interesting like discovery problem. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I've talked to people who, you know, are editors at All Music. I've talked to people who are working at Netflix. You know, whatever media we're talking about, like, mm -hmm. this is a giant debate. Um, and I do also think that, I can't remember the name of the service, maybe you know it, but a couple years ago there was specifically a service that was, we will ask a person to send you a playlist, right? And a few friends, mutual friends we have who are musicians, mm -hmm. like we're getting contracted to do this kind of gig work, you know, and it's not necessarily like the Uber of playlists, but yeah. it was like that's what's sort of their model, right? They were like, this person will kind of be your friend <laughs> for a particular cool period of time. Friend. Yeah, I mean, they'll at least like listen to you, like what your top artists are, what vibe you're looking for, or whatever, and then they will come back with a playlist. And I think that the next probably five to 10 years, it's gonna be really interesting to see what. Um, what ingenious ways people come up with to kind of both utilize the algorithms, but then kind of skirt your way around this and come up with new ways of discovery or ways to kind of balance mm -hmm. out being in an echo chamber. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question because it's sort of being done already for individual businesses. They want to be yeah. hip, right. um, but they license with some company who's making them an individual playlist to sort of brand them. That's totally true. And as yeah. people are sort of trying to cultivate personal brands, I don't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if there's more people pushing their like, their brand ethos with mm -hmm. air quotes going on because I know this is a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but this brand ethos and having a sort of musical branding thing to go along with it, um, whether or not that increases, 
in number of streams and mm -hmm. the amount of dollars that gets into a pocket of an artist is sort of a different question. Uh, but it's, it's in some ways been interesting because that the streaming, um, the streaming services have sort of at least brought into the economy mm -hmm. a certain subset of users who I don't know if would have ever purchased the music otherwise. I could see um, that. Yeah. yeah, there are people who still uh, legally rip stuff and find whatever. Sure, like, sure. Um, there's always going to be. That's, least, uh, yeah. that's always going to happen. Yeah. But a lot of those people, the amount of like illegal streaming has been gone down. There's research that's mm -hmm. sort of like academically that's proved that. Um, and we can have debates about like whether or not the percentage of the pie that's going to the artists should be more. I right. personally believe it should be more. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they have done an interesting sort of service in a way, and it's an interesting way to kind of look at them. I'm not a shill for Spotify no, or Apple no. <laughs> Music, but they've changed that the economics of that a little bit, and that uh, that I found find really interesting. And it's remains to be seen if those folks are then going out to shows more and purchasing more. I mean, probably it's happening if you see that more people are buying music and more people are going to shows and the economy uh, surrounding music is growing worldwide, you could probably make that point. I don't know if mm -hmm. anybody's tied it yeah. next to each other. Some of it like, still feels so to, nebulous, but, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do think it is interesting because also the ecosystem of live shows has, and touring has like changed entirely yeah. too, right? So. Yeah, um, I think that a lot of these questions, they have these interesting corollaries within the film industry, within the you know, uh, book publishing industry, but like, these are still very different types of media. So you know, the types of sales that you're gonna get from an author going on a tour are really different from the types of sales of merch that you're gonna get, or ticket sales that you're gonna get mm -hmm. from like a top 40 artist going on tour, you know? Yeah. And we all, like, at the labels I worked at, we tended to always in to give people download codes, for mm -hmm. example. Totally. And it sounds kind of, antiquated to talk about that almost <laughs> but we like we'd sell a vinyl I still record appreciate it. Yeah, yeah we'd sell a vinyl record and put a download code in there so you didn't have to buy it a million times and you could listen to it in your car and it always sort of it's no not an attack against the book publishing industry but i've always wondered why there wasn't something similar mm. for mm. a book that you purchase mm -hmm. like i would love to you know if i purchase a 60 dollar academic text Mm -hmm. on the music industry or business or whatever for for work. I'd love to be able to like not have to lug a 30 pound book around <laughs> yeah. or 20 pound book around um, on a plane to be able to read that or keep reading or to do research. Um, and so, um, I don't know, it's just always been kind of confused by that. And I remember sort of saying that at a conference at U of M a while ago and I never really got much of an answer from the bigger publishers. The littler ones were kind of interested in it, but I don't know if anybody's really adopted that. Yeah, and it might be kind of what you were talking about in terms of the willingness of like a indie label being more like, okay, we'll try this model out. We'll experiment with this thing and then we can, you know, change course and it might just be some of that like difference of like yeah. willingness to experiment, but it will be interesting to see um, sort of what the future of some of that looks like. Um, let's see, how are we doing on time? So we probably should wrap up pretty shortly, I okay. think. Um, but I also, I, I'm curious, I mean, both of us have kind of admitted that 
if you would have talked to us a decade ago, we would not have been able to predict like the exact ways exactly. that the industry would have changed. <laughs> um, but with that said, I'm curious, um, what are like three things that have really surprised you, specifically over the last five years, in terms of the way that things have changed? And what is, we've talked about a few giant questions about that we're curious like where this will go, but what is one prediction that you do have maybe about um, where things will go with um, sort of the music streaming or licensing even ecosystem over yeah. the next five? I think um, the big, probably the, my prediction, because that one's easier than the other question. Um, <laughs> the prediction I would say is that, um, music is going to become more experiential. So mm -hmm. streaming probably, it's a service, it, it's a functional thing. Mm -hmm. It allows you to have access to the entire world of music on your phone or on your computer desktop at work. And that's right. great, but it's still kind of a boring interaction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Not saying anything bad about the music, but it's no, still, it's very it's clear very, exactly it's a very, what you're gonna There's get. a wall there yeah. um, that's hard to get across. And I think the sort of um, experience side of things is probably where stuff is going to grow. And that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean just live performance. I think obviously it includes live performance, but you see things like rebroadcasts mm -hmm. of... Um, the Metropolitan Opera in movie theaters. I was just going to And, um, you know, I sat, and I'm a classical music nerd, mm -hmm. so um, there was, it wasn't completely full to the brim in the, in the, in the uh, movie theater, but I sat and watched the LA Philharmonic do the Mahler 8 Symphony mm -hmm. live from Venezuela um, with their all-star conductor. And it yeah. was an event to be at there, and the National Theater's right. doing stuff like that. Um, I could see live performance happening like that when things when festivals like Coachella sell out mm -hmm. immediately maybe it makes sense to have event like things with mini Coachellas almost like satellite yeah and bars in the <laughs> the you know bars and celebrations and turn up the music really loud it's for like, an evening yeah. at the movie theater or somewhere else the experiential like equivalent of like the the album release party right yeah. like, people have listening parties for like the new you know exactly um, or could you have yeah. like a music festival that uses technology over the next 10 years to have the festival go on here in ann arbor and berlin at the same time right or and have performances where the, those that's that could be really interesting and it's this mm -hmm. sort of more participatory thing um also getting you know, we, for instance, you have uh, you have instruments here that musicians can check out, and it's yeah. a way of being participatory um, in the creation process. I think maybe that will happen a little bit more too. Not necessarily that fans are going to dictate what the songs are going to be like, but no. they might be able to choose a direction or choose your own adventure a little mm. bit more. And that's <laughs> happening on Netflix and. There may be some kind of things like that that mm -hmm. happen. Yeah, yeah. And I forgot what well, the Well, and you other see people was. doing. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll repeat it in a second. But I, I see people doing like um, sort of immediate things with like live coding with Sonic Pi and stuff, like yeah. where you know they're they're hanging out with the audience and the audience kind of gives them guidance for what they want to do, and it does become kind of a different experience. Um, and you can have technologically assisted performance. You can have 
old school jazz cats playing with somebody who's like live sampling from the audience or Absolutely. having participatory things going on and that might be the direction that it steers a little bit more. And then it becomes just an interesting question of how does the industry help artists do that and yeah. how, how does it help artists make sure that they're supporting themselves while right. doing that. Right, and keep the lights on. I think that like that's yeah. one of the tricky parts is you know so much of this is uncharted that it gets really exciting, but then you also try to figure out, yeah, like how everyone in the ecosystem can be supported, you know, um, not just like the giant platforms or, you know, yeah. um, and again, I'm not against giant platforms, but it's yeah. figuring out, yeah, like what pieces of the, of the pie and of the puzzle make sense. Um, so my other question was just, and you don't have to come up with three, but <laughs> things that have surprised you over, and it might relate to what you're just talking about, but things that have surprised you a couple things that have surprised you over the last five years with regards to how things have changed. Because mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about like longer view, how much things have changed over 10, 15 years, but just more recently. Yeah, I, definitely one immediately comes to mind and that's how the interest in ownership has sort of changed. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a generational thing or the fact that a, a younger generation's coming into more full-time jobs and cash, mm -hmm. but is taking on the sort of background of not wanting to necessarily own things or having a lot, they, people want to move around more, they rent yeah. more, they rent housing more, they rent, they lease cars more, and that same sort of thing happened, I think. It makes sense in hindsight that streaming was popular mm -hmm. um, yeah. because it allowed you to kind of move around more, you didn't, you know, if you moved to New York, you didn't have to lug around a thousand pounds of records or whatever. Totally. Which is actually a, a problem. Or even if you're a DJ, the fact mm -hmm. that you could digitally play records and perform and not have to carry around or check suitcases full of records um, yeah. was a, a big thing. I think the second, for me in the last five years at least, um, maybe a little bit longer, is how accepted it has become for musicians and artists to license their music to brands and to cooperate with brands. You have yeah. certain brands like Red Bull, even though they're getting out of it now. Right. Um, and But for a particular period a lot, of time, yeah. like Red Bull was this like almost pillar. Yeah. And that was a whole interesting thing because, you know, right after the Free Vise and Converse era, right? Like yeah. where they were supporting a lot of touring bands, like Red Bull really, yeah was a major force. Yeah, and the, like there's certain, still certain instances of those brands, but it became essentially okay, mm -hmm. um, whereas it wasn't when I started my job, and we got lots of angry emails when we'd license um, to Hummer or, to Hummer or <laughs> yeah. whoever. Yeah. I mean, that was a pretty, <laughs> that was maybe not the easiest example. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, seeing like, the Arcade Fire doing, um, or New Pornographers doing, I think it was New Pornographers actually, licensing to Outback. Oh, wow, Steakhouse, yeah. Um, yeah. For one of their songs. And it was mm -hmm. like, I thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. It was a great fit. Sure. Um, maybe it was Arcade Fire. I don't remember exactly which band it was. But the example is still there. Um, and they got a lot of guff at the time because it was mm -hmm. one of the first ones, but they kind of cracked open a door. Yeah. Um, with a bunch of other artists that made it okay. And now it's no big deal right. to see or hear an indie artist on a you know, big Apple ad or something. Totally. Well, and I think that, you know, 
maybe for longer people who were working in the industry understood that like that was a way to recoup costs. I mean, when a musician friend is, gets a sponsored deal for a car ad, and that enables them to like have almost a salary for part of a year, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, we always looked a practical at it like, reality. sweet, the artist, we just allowed that artist to have a retirement account. They didn't yeah. have that before. They bought a house and they didn't have that before. Or more grace to work on a next album or, you know, yeah, like totally. any of those things, yeah. But I do remember in terms of like the, the timing, I remember um, watching Entertainment Tonight and seeing, uh, and again, it's like not an ad, but seeing uh, a lit or hearing a La Tigre song in the background. Yeah. <laughs> and it was right around that era of like early 2000s where you're like, what is like, you That's know. my band. I'm the only person that knows about them. <laughs> right? And, like, and then, cool. yeah. No, it is cool. A lot more people are, you know. <laughs> yeah, and so like, but after thinking about it for like literally a minute, I was like, well, they got a check, right? Like yeah. this means that like they're able to like keep putting out music and, um, but I do think that you're right that that's been a huge cultural shift to go from thinking like, oh man, like they're selling out to being like, this is the world that we live in. And like people realize that this can be an odd pairing, you know, yeah. but at the same time, you know, if it enables that person to create more work and to be able to feed themselves, then yeah. It is yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a significant, significant upside mm -hmm. um, that comes from that. And I think that that was cool to see that more embraced because it does help you know, the artists themselves so much. And I think the last one, I did actually make it to three. The last <laughs> one really quickly would be yeah. just the fact that a lot of the gatekeepers are gone. Like yeah. you can get your music released into the sort of normal sales channels, um, the important sales channels, and there is not much of a barrier to entry. Um, and that was a big change and really good for a lot of musicians, um, but also, I think makes it difficult as you're starting out because it's really it makes it harder to get from point A to point B. Yeah. If like point, point C B would is up here. Yeah, yeah. The the distance is huge to point B. Um, and if point C is like being able to support yourself mm -hmm. day to day as a musician, it just makes it it pushes that further along. Yeah. That's um, and we can argue about whether or not the access is good or bad, but right. it's just it's changed. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Well, I don't feel like I have any other big questions. I feel like yeah. we've hit on a lot of the like core changes that have happened. Um, Same. Yeah. Thanks, you guys, for hanging out with us. Um, this was a pleasure. It was fun to catch up and be able to talk about some of these giant issues. Because exactly. sometimes in the day-to-day, -day, you don't really get to like think about. <laughs>